A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Elias, and welcome to the inaugural show of Transformative Experts. I have my producer with me, Jesse Jamison. Say hi, Jesse. Hi, everybody. We are, um, we're waiting for Tony Michaels, who's going to be on the show in a few minutes, but we're going to take a couple minutes just to kind of, you know, let you all get to know me and what the show's all about. And, you know, Jesse, we were talking just, uh, just before this, uh, the show began, and there were some things that you wanted to talk about. Um, what, what's on your mind this morning? You know I'm goofy, and I wanted to ask you, because every time we talk, you talk about your past history with a place called Big Boy. And I knew it growing up as Bob's Big Boy. And then you went ahead and you were kind of telling me a story about how Bob is actually, and I'll let you, I'll let you tell the story from there. Yeah, well, so Bob is Bob Wyant, and Bob is is um, is the guy who started the whole thing. So, um, for those of you who may not know, um, Big Boy Restaurants was um, you know a pretty major uh, national restaurant chain for a long time, and there's a really interesting story behind the growth and and change and shift and where it is today. Um, but that's kind of where where I started my professional life was was working within the Big Boy system, and so I always say Big Boy because we think bigger picture. But but back when Bob started it. The, the whole system started out um, as uh, Bob's Pantry was was his, and it was the home of the big boy. Um, in Detroit, um, we actually had a family restaurant chain. Um, it was it was just you know it was Elias Brothers, and uh, it turned out that my father and uncles, who were friends with with Bob Wine, who started it, um, were at a conference one one day, and and they were talking about how things were going. And Bob had mentioned how somebody uh, had taken the name and was was operating in Ohio under the same name. And back in in those days, and we're we're talking around nineteen, I want to say it's like nineteen thirty six, nineteen forty. You know, back in those days, um, the franchise laws were such that you didn't really have national trademark protection if you if you weren't a multi-state operator. So, um, so my dad and uncles agreed to to a contract, a, a franchise contract with Bob, um, to be a franchisee for a dollar a year for the state of Michigan in perpetuity, and that's kind now of that- how we, we got into the big boy business. That's a great deal. Now, let me ask you this real quick, not to interrupt you, but I always think of, and I want the people at home to, because they know Bob's Big Boy, even if they don't think they do. We all remember that iconic giant statue of a big, big kid, like it looked like a big Campbell's kid or something. Is that something that came along later or was that kind of from the 30s too? It's kind of from the '30s too, uh, you know. Is as, as I recall the story, and and I, I, I admittedly, actually, my guest coming on Tony um, would would be probably better to tell us the story, um, but but you know, it was really it, the character started out as a caricature from um, I believe it was a Disney artist. So so the original store was down, you know, kind of in Studio City. It's where all the studios are, Burbank, you know, that area of um, of Los Angeles, and. Um, there was a, a, a artist, an animator that was sitting there and did a caricature of the kid cleaning up behind the counter. And that became the original character. And that character has evolved over the years. Um, so, you know, if, if, if you look at the original, the black and white drawing, it looked very different than, than the big boy character did in the, let's call it the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even currently. Um, so that's kind of, that's where the, the character came from. Um, the, the names like Bob's and, you know, it was Elias Brothers up in Michigan, those names were a result really of how the system grew. Um, I, late in the 1960s, Bob sold the, the concept to Marriott restaurants. And w- what Marriott did is they operated this more like a licensing system in that, um, you know, they sold regions and they pretty much licensed the big boy sandwich, the original double decker sandwich and, um, you know, some different menu items in the character. And, um, basically let every group run its own. So what it, what you really had was you had Bob's and it was home of the big boy and became Bob's big boy. And you had Elias Brothers, home of the big boy, became Elias Brothers, big boy. You had Shoney's at one time, which became Shoney's big boy. And there were, I don't know, a bunch of others. Um, in, ni- in the kind of mid-1980s, we bought 
the system from Marriott. They decided they uh, they wanted to go into some other things. We bought it, became the franchisor, and at that time, we made the decision to de-identify the um, the first names in front of Big Boy and just go with Big Boy. So Jesse, when you hear me say Big Boy and you think Bob's, you know you're you're not wrong to think Bob's. It's just that that. You know, kind of in the 80s, we started moving away from the names to try to create more of a a national restaurant identity. So my kids want to know, is it true or false that Bob's Big Boy or the Big Boy logo did morph into Jimmy Neutron or do they just look alike and it's totally coincidence? You know, you never really know the big old pompadour, right? And so um, maybe it was just coincidence. Uh, maybe you know, maybe it was a fan. I mean, you know, if you think about it, think about the places, the weird places you've seen the big boy character, Austin Powers, for instance. You'll see it in those movies, and out of the blue, doing really weird things. Um, you know, it, the character was iconic. I love that character. It's part of my childhood. I consider it pure Americana, and yeah. I'm sure you do too. Oh, absolutely. So, let, so let's talk about your show, Transformative Experts. Now, you were just talking about how that logo changed and, and transformed through the years. Is Transformative Experts going to be a show that kind of hits on the same type of transformation? Yeah, you know, um, it's it's funny. I think think about all the philosophies that my dad and uncles used to to have and. And, you know, one of the things that, that they always said was to stand still was to retreat, right? It's an old cliche, but it's very, very true. They, 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 they really believed in always striving for something bigger, something better growing and, and never taking steps backwards. And what I realized even in my work today, so, so you know, we sold the company in 2000. I, I left at that point. I chose not to stay on. Um, we, we sold the company and I started my, my current, you know, work, which, which is a consulting organization and have come to realize that the best performing companies, the best performing entrepreneurs, the best performing people go through transformation, but they also generate transformation in others. They're very transformative, right? They're catalysts for transformation. So, so the concept of transformative experts is, is really to take a look at all different kind of, um, you know, walks of life, all different people who have been transformative to others, who help others transform. And, you know, most of this, obviously, this is the business channel. We're talking about businesses. We'll talk about, you know, you know, transforming business cultures, um, you know, transforming execution, um, you know, but also some of the guests that we're looking at having on have, have really transformed their communities, have transformed people's lives. Uh, there's, there's just so many, so many aspects. And, and I think we want to keep it open because I, I, we have a potential of really, you know, opening this up and bringing some great talent. But our goal is just to bring in people, share some stories, um, have some fun. Hopefully some of the stories will be funny. I'm sure some of the f- stories will be sad. I mean, I, I, always, I, I, I don't always want to hear all the successes. Sometimes the horror stories can help us as well. And so, you know, I'm looking, well, we, looking learn, we, learn, we learn from our mistakes, right? Yeah. And then I think everybody that's anybody has always had a mentor in some way or at least an idol, right, yeah. that they look up to. So I'm really looking forward to that. And the sad stories sometimes make the positive outcomes that much more better, right? You need to kind of go through that Phoenix through the fire and ashes, you know, rising up type quality to uh, appreciate, uh, you know, success. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because again, as, as I think of the people who generate transformation, who really are able to set their egos aside, they've been through some really hard stuff. You know, they've learned to be humble in a lot of different ways. And, um, you know, and that can, that can really be a very, very powerful thing. Now, not all of them. I mean, there's certainly been a lot of transformative people who, who haven't gone through rock bottom times. Um, and not all our guests are going to have gone through that, but, but we all have our horror stories. We all have, have the things that we learn from. And, you know, if we look back, we would do it differently. Um, you know, good and bad. Uh, but there's also a lot of humor in some of that as well. I mean, sometimes you look back at it and you just say, oh my gosh, how did I, how did I ever go through that? Or, you know, there's there's a lot of humbling experiences in life. Let's talk a little bit more about you for the audience's sake. So have you transformed more pre 2000 or post 2000? Because you said in 2000, right, was when you guys decided to sell the big boy. Yeah. You know, um, it's funny. I, I look back and, and even when I was in high school, I, I think if I if I hadn't had a, a path chosen for me, which can happen in, in family businesses, um, 
I, I look at all the things I would have done. Now I have no regrets. I mean, I've gone through some great things, but but I remember when I first came to work for for Big Boy, um, we, we one of the guys who was my first boss over there pulled me aside and he said, "Look, he said, this is a huge family. There are a lot of people here, and most people are looking at you as just." Just here comes just another one of them. He said, and if you just kind of ride it and just be one of those family members that tries to control everything and drive it, nobody's going to like you. You're never going to get anything done. And you're just going to live off the silver spoon. He said, if you want to set yourself apart, be prepared to work harder than anybody else, because in some regards, you'll have more to, to prove. And, um, and I really took that to heart. And that was probably the first transformation I went through is recognizing, you know, there's no easy path. If you want success, you have to work really, really hard. And I was willing to put in the time and effort and did things that nobody else wanted to do, took on projects that others didn't want to take on and working with a great group of people. We had a, we had a great culture there um, and, and really learning what it took. I mean, my dad and uncles build that business out of the Great Depression um, without, without a penny to their names. And they they built it into something huge, really huge and 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 outstanding. And it would be very easy for for us as family members, second generation, to just sit back and ride on that. But but that's not how I was raised. I mean, my my dad really always pushed me for excellence and greatness, and that's that's what I drove. Um, and so that was really awakening for me. But you know, it, the other thing that occurred is, is um, you know, as, as happens with older families, people passed away. There was a change of some leadership in the mid '90s, and uh, we actually we had a CEO who and who really kind of drove a um, you know a. a pretty major acquisition and the acquisition didn't work out the way it should. And unfortunately we ended up in a turnaround and that was happening in the nineties. There were a lot of acquisitions going on and a lot of companies ending up in turnarounds. But the part that was really crazy was that I found that I enjoyed that work much, much better than being in the restaurant business. So, you know, when we finally kind of got through it and got back on an even keel and then, you know, we had a buyer come in and everybody decided it was time to sell the company. I couldn't see myself going back to the old way. And even though they, they graciously offered me a really great position, and everything, you know, you got to know when to leave. And I, I actually guide people all the time today on mergers and sales is, you know, if you sell your company, leave, don't stay around because, you know, people are going to do different things. You're not going to necessarily agree with it, like with it, get away. I got away. And all of a sudden finding myself with a whole life ahead of me and not knowing what to do, thus comes the next level of transformation. Um, you know, really getting to self-recognition and trying to figure out what am I good at, what am I not good at, and what do I do with my life from here? And it's been a fun, incredible journey. Um I've worked with some incredible people, some incredible businesses, um, work with some bad ones too. You know, those, those, those gigs don't last very long. I, I think I've walked away from four or five clients over the years that I just shook my head and said, I, I can't work with these people. I've learned the, the importance of alignment, alignment of values, alignment of personalities, um, what it takes. And, um, and it pushes me today. And it's, it's become a big part of who I am as a, as a human being. And lastly, the important part of self-recognition and self-awareness. Do you, how well do you know yourself? right? How well do I know myself? It's unbelievable how many people don't know themselves very well. They don't recognize their behaviors. They don't recognize whether or not they're, they're great or whether or not they're disruptive. Uh, my wife, my wife is one of the best leaders I have ever known. I mean, I watch her lead boards and lead organizations. She's, she's absolutely phenomenal. And I don't even think she's really aware of it. And she wonders why everybody comes to her when they need advice or need things or why they always want her to lead. It's because of her style and how she can engage people. Uh, Self-awareness is key, and we, we all need to be part of that. And that is the first step of transformation and then becoming transformative to our environments and others. I really respect when people say that they... Uh when they can say that they decided to walk away from clients, because that's almost taboo, the idea of walking away from clients. But the reality is, you know, you can have toxic friendships in life and you can have toxic clients. And what's really interesting, and I'm sure that we're going to hear a lot about it on your show coming up over the upcoming weeks and months, is when you have these different experts on the show, they're going to be able to kind of talk about the things that you can do so you don't lose business. Because, you know, there's lots of things that we do that might not help us gain, but we can still lose. Yeah. And, um, you know, your attitude and the way you treat others uh, and the way you come across is important. We're going to be going to break in about a minute, though, Chris. What else did you want to say? Well, uh, you know, I, I just think about what you were just saying. Um, 
I guess I, I've gotten to a place where I don't really worry about losing business. I worry about, am I doing the best for my client and can I provide what they need? Right. And, and I, I believe that that's really the most important thing. I think when we worry about losing is when we put ourselves at the greatest risk of losing whatever it is we're concerned with losing. Right. So let's, you know, let's stay focused on doing our best, always striving for being the best and doing what we need to do. And um, you know what? Not everything's going to work out. But we move forward. We move forward and we, we grow. And I'm just a believer, help as many people as you can and everything else will come. And old saying with from Confucius, do a job you love and everything else, the money and success will follow. And that's, that's where I'm going to stay. Um, so we're going to have to jump. As you mentioned, we got to jump to a break here. And um, you know, we'll, I'm going we'll to I'm gonna, I'm gonna be leaving and you're... Yeah. And you're going to have uh, Tony Michaels on. So yeah. I hope everybody enjoys uh, your time with Tony. And thank you for having me on, Chris. I'll come on again in the future, I promise. Always oh, going to be glad to have you, Jesse. And, you know, the beautiful beautiful part about technology today, we can all be in different parts of the world. Tony and I will be in different areas and um, still be able to conduct, uh, you know, fun and great radio and, and, and programs like this. And especially, you know, it's COVID. It hasn't stopped us from doing these kind of things. So I'm looking forward to it. I think everybody's going to enjoy it. Tony was somebody I worked with for years. I care very, very much about. I think he's one of the best leaders I've ever known. So uh, when we come back, we'll have Tony Michaels, and I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation. See you in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. Well, I'm excited to have our first guest, Tony Michaels, with us today. Hi, Tony. How are you? Hey, top of the day. So um, to be here. I have known Tony um, almost my whole life, and I think it's appropriate for Tony to be our first guest because, um, you know, in some regards, we grew up together. Um, I worked for Tony. He was he was actually my first real boss in, in a corporate environment. I um, I uh, had the opportunity of growing up in big boy restaurants, as we mentioned earlier in the segment, and um, Tony, you were you were in the marketing, but but I want to spend a couple minutes because we're going to talk about how you know some of your history and what you learned throughout that process and and the transformation that you've been able to create today based on what you learned. But let's take a couple minutes. I'd love it if you would just share a little bit of your personal history. How did it all get started for you? How how did you come into the company? Um, you know your your path into well marketing and um, and just just tell me a little bit about that part of it. Well, I, as you know, my father worked for Elias Brothers for years and years and years. And so I worked in the summertime while going to school. And I was 14 years old when I first started. I would work in the commissary. I'd run stuff around in the office. And every summer I worked and graduated college in 81. 
And I was actually going to go to Marriott in Bethesda, Maryland. And um, uh, some of the executives, of course, at, at uh, Elias Brothers said, no, no, this is your home. You need to stay here. You need to work here. And so I did. And um, and uh, he was 81. I did all kinds of crazy jobs. I was in purchasing. I was in institutional sales. Uh, we were trying to sell our products in grocery stores. Uh, I learned how to count grill scrapers in the warehouse, uh, all kinds of things. Worked a little bit in marketing and became uh, head of marketing in 1986, um, which was really my dream. I wanted to run the marketing area, and, and uh, that was just great. And then just grew from there uh, up until, um, oh, geez, Chris, 98 or 99, when uh, you and your uncle called me down and said, we want to make you the captain of the Titanic. Um, which the company was, you know, going kind of sideways at the time and had let the CEO go. And I became the CEO at 39 years old in uh, 1999, I think. I know that was, then, a, uh, that was a point where you and I partnered because, you know, that they, they, one other guy was taken out. And so I was kind of president and on kind of the overreaching, the turnaround role. And you had, you took over the real operations of the company at that point. And, you know, Tony, I got to tell you, um, you had shown so many great leadership skills at that point. It was a fairly obvious choice. I mean, I, as, as far as any of us were concerned, there wasn't really anybody else to choose from. Well, I have to tell you, I, I, I learned it all just from being there for 14 years old and, and watching and understanding because um, what your family had that I take to today's, with everything I do and what I talk to my team about, is uh, almost a maniacal uh, attitude towards greatness and quality. And you never, ever, ever, ever let that drop. You keep driving to do things great, do them better. You're going to fail every day. But if you don't keep trying to make it better, um, you're never going to improve. And when you improve and you do great things, people want to be around that company. They want to be a part of it. So that's really what I took from all of those crazy years. You know, when you think when I became CEO, we had to find a buyer of the company, which we did. And, uh, you know, that I ran seven more years and we were doing just great and left at the end of 08. So, um, you know, then started doing this in the middle of 09. I was on the board of the parade company and somebody said, hey, what do you think if you ran this? I said, really? And and I said, well, I have to get paid this. Well, we only have this. But if you grow it and make it great, you know, we can really make this really good. So that's what I did. And here we are in 2020. This organization is rolling right now, just rolling and uh, it's been, it's been quite a ride. Yeah, you know, um, so, you know, our listen, listeners are a national audience, and um, many may not know what the Parade Company is. Give, give us a little bit of Parade Company history. Uh, the Parade Company is the nonprofit which puts on the big events in the city of Detroit. The America's Thanksgiving Parade, presented by Gardner White, the Ford Fireworks. Um, in fact, our parade was just voted the number one holiday parade in America, two years running in, in USA Today. Uh, it is it is quite a show, and it's syndicated in 180 cities across America. Uh, the Ford Fireworks, probably in the top three shows in America, um, with that coming up on August 31st. Uh, we had to move the date with the pandemic and so on. It's going to be a television-only show, and, but we're ready to go. We also do the Strategic Staffing Solutions Turkey Trot, the second largest run in the state of Michigan. We do an event called Hobnob Ogawa, presented by Ford. We build all the floats here for the parade. Plus, we're involved in the community in a big, big way. So this is a, a quite a little but growing, growing company. It really well, is. And, and when you joined it, um, it was kind of really little. I mean, it was, was, it, was it in danger at that point? Yeah. Um, I will tell you, I was on the board for years while I was still at Elias Brothers. And um, when I decided to do this, uh, it was dire straits when it came to finances and really the operation in general. Um, the attitude here was what well, we have to pull off the crate. We got to pull off the fireworks. And so, uh, we didn't have a lot of money. There was uh, not a lot of revenue coming in every year. I think we had just around 3 million coming in annually. Today we have 8.2. 
coming in. Um, we weren't bottom lining anything. We were losing money every year and kind of begging people to support. And right now we bottom line a million dollars a year and we put it away. Uh, our expenses today are $2 million more than they were annually. And they were the year I got in, $2 million, and we bottom line a million. So it's a $3 million turnaround in a lot of cases. Um, it was all done. What I learned years ago was just continually trying to make things great and to really, really put value in the people that are here and what they can bring to the table. So let's let's start with that early beginning. Um, you mentioned uh, that one of your first jobs was working in the commissary. And again, for the, the, the listeners who may not know, the commissary was our food manufacturing division. So we... Um, you know, we started small, but control of food was very, very important for us. And in our commissary, we produced, you know, every kind of soup and sauce and dressing uh, required for the restaurants. We actually had a lot of baked goods. We produced our own ice cream. We had a meat processing center. We had, um, you know, uh, other vegetable processing, sandwich processing. We, we, we did a lot under, uh, under a, a pretty large roof by that point, um, including distribution, warehousing, the whole shot. Well, um, what, what was your very first job in the commissary? Uh, I was 14 and I was unloading a lettuce truck. Unloading. Case, I slid 80 to 80 pounds a case. My back paid the price of it, two back surgeries. But I was uh, literally unloading lettuce off of lettuce trucks, unloading french fries, um, cleaning, sweeping, um, doing all kinds of things. But I got my license when I was 16. And a store was short on something, they would throw me in this little van without air conditioning in the summer and go make deliveries around the city of Detroit to various big boy restaurants. Um, you know, along with doing the other things. It was everything. It was just like whatever needed to get done, we did it. Unloading trucks, uh, getting getting products over to the production rooms. Uh, you know, it was a great, great company. Great company. And uh, that commissary supported all those big boy restaurants. And, that was quite quite an operation. It really was. So you know, um, while certainly we'll we'll reserve on naming names from time to time, you know, to you know protect the innocent or maybe not so innocent sometimes. Um, you know, uh, there are, there were some people that that you know easy to recognize, especially in the commissary. You know, who was it that you worked for back then? I worked for the infamous Ralph Jeremet who has since passed away and just one of the greatest people on earth. He really was. And um, actually my father hired him when he was 14 years old. Talk about a classic story, but Ralph ran that operation with Dave and the whole gang. And, uh, these were guys who believed in everything we did and, uh, and it showed. And that's why the product is so great coming out. So to be 14, 15, 16, and to go through that and watch Everybody with the same attitude, the same culture, it just, it's contagious. And if more organizations really had that and understood what that meant, uh, I'll tell you what, I, 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 the, the sky's the limit. It really is when it comes to companies. It really is. Yeah, and so when, when, when you think about... Um when you think about Ralph's leadership style and, um, you know, and, and how, how it was, how, how would you describe it? Cause was that, was that a style? It was a style. Yeah. I think it was a style. So, so, you know, Ralph, Ralph wasn't a college educated guy and yeah. yet he was running a $200 million operation. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. you know, how, how does that happen? How do you, how do you, how do you think that happens in an organization like big boy? I think it's heart and soul. I really do. They noticed that this guy could grab it by the reins and run it. And yeah, he was he was rough around the edges with a heart of gold. He really was. So he was never going to hurt anybody, but he was going to bark, now nah, you need to go do that right now. What are you doing? What are you doing? And then he'd laugh and say, hey, when you're done, come on back and shoot the breeze. You know, I mean, it was just that kind of life. It really was. It was fabulous. He was, a, he was just a, a wonderful guy. Really, really wonderful. Yeah, it was it was interesting because I remember the the one of the summers that I worked for him. You know, kind of probably doing a lot of the same things that you were doing and learning learning the ratings on the food manufacturing side. I, I can remember one day one of the guys coming back and saying, "How's Chris doing?" And Ralph's response was, "Oh, Chris is doing great. I've taken his vocabulary of several thousand words down to about ten. And um, yeah. you know, it's it's, it's about how things work. Yeah, <laughs> they were all four letters, um, but." You know, if you really think about it, you know, he was such a fit to the culture 
because the 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 organization grew. I mean, you know, the birth of Big Boy was during the Great Depression, right? And um, and it was almost a sheer um, will that drove success with that organization. It was. Um, it just, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, you know, it could have failed so many times, but it started with one restaurant and went up to, I mean, if you include all the international, uh, you know, the, you know, in the heyday worldwide, Big Boy had what, 1,500, 1,700 restaurants in that range? There were quite a few, Chris, yeah. Uh, maybe a hair less than that, but there were quite a few. You know, that was, um, and then Marriott bought the brand. Yeah. Morning, and then your family bought the brand in 1987 from Marriott. Um, the one problem with that entire chain was that there were old contracts, as yeah. we know. Yeah. The old contracts were locked in stone, and they didn't have to do what you said. I mean, they got to run their own restaurants, they got to do their own thing, and that was ultimately the biggest problem with that brand was the old contracts that that didn't allow a company like Elias Brothers to take what they knew and what they did, you know, to all of these stores. Because they simply wanted to do it their way and they had the contract which told them that they can do it. Yeah. You know, and that's and that was the tough path that that changed up. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it was really, you know, it's funny because when people ask me the story, I, I describe it as really more of a licensing system than a than a franchise system really i mean you know they called it franchising but it really wasn't they were really just licensing the name and some items and and each regional operator could operate different ways and some were more successful than others i mean you know quite frankly we were able to buy it because of the success that we were generating and that was um that was not happening in the other operations and um just the culture of the other operations how would you compare those cultures based on your experience of working with them with ours Oh boy, we we had the culture of just do it right, do it great. Um, it was really fabulous. The others, there wasn't a concern about great food all the time and doing things great. Uh, you know, there's this whole thing, and I talk about this here all the time. The money follows. Um, if you do things really well, do things great, the money does follow. Um, but I will say, some of those chains, they started not serving food that was fabulous or great like ours was and that's what people became accustomed to so they built their niche they had their customer base uh, we built it on people who said they wanted things better they wanted the best coffee they wanted the best bread i mean i, I can i tell a little inside story here about your family please please can I do that yeah um chris knows this his father and uncle and other uncle gabe would go to lunch every day at 12 noon, right to the second. And they would order something different every single day because they wanted to see if the product was as good as it was supposed to. Well, if the bread wasn't cut to the right thickness, somebody would get a call at 12.13. And they would have come over to that restaurant connected to the commissary because the bread simply wasn't cut thick enough or uh, the sauce wasn't thick enough or there weren't enough, you know, whatever in various sauces and it was fixed within two minutes and it was fixed with spirit <laughs> but it, it really sent a message that we were going to do it the right way or don't do it at all and that's a really big deal so so elias brothers stood out but it was very difficult as we said earlier to impress that upon some of the other chains who had these contracts that they could do what they want um and uh you know what um it's great, great upbringing. It was, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything on earth. I really wouldn't. Um, to watch the executives of that company, like Jitterbugs, literally working on 50 different things at the same time with that same culture, what a great lesson. What a great lesson. And I, I try to take that wherever I go, whatever I do. Yeah, and um, you know, I think this is probably a good good place for us to to take a quick pause, Tony. Um, so I want to keep this conversation going. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a a little bit of a break, and we will be back in just a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. 
The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. Okay, we're back, and we're going to continue our conversation with Tony Michaels. You know, Tony, based on what you were saying before, one of the things that really struck me is the importance of culture being intentional. So one of the things we preach in our organization today is that every company has a culture. And in some regards, there's no such thing as a, a bad culture. It's whatever the culture the people want is the culture that's there. We want people aligned. But then the other side of that coin is probably the only bad culture is an unintentional one, right? When, when a culture hasn't been defi- defined or people aren't doing it, that's when you end up with a lot of negative. But what you've described by the actions, the, the, the drive to quality, you know, there's, there's core values in all of that and the importance of surviving, how you know, somebody who wasn't driven to work hard and be family focused, being um, you know, adhering to the quality, you know, they wouldn't have survived in our organization very long, right? I mean, these are the kind of things. And so there was a very, very intentional culture in play, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. Yeah, but we did go through a big change. We really did. Yeah, we did. And so um, so I want to move into the other part of the story because, you know, not everything's always, you know, always nice. I mean, things things happen in companies. And so, um, you know, there was um, a change of leadership. Um, you know, there was, um, you know, the passing of, of my father and some other changes that occurred that caused a shift at the top and a new CEO was appointed. Um, and it was kind of, there, there, there was a shift that started occurring at that point. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, from your standpoint as somebody who was an executive on the team, what did you feel was going on with, with the change of leadership? There was a shift from um, do it right, feel it, and just, just gung-ho every minute to all of a sudden um, being blamed for things and being pushed around in a way that was so counter to how that company was built. And it got to a point where um, it got almost violent at times. It was raging. Um, and what it did, it, it pretty much slowed the team down and it stopped their free thinking and their thought process, and, and it really, really, truly damaged the company in a, in a really bad way. Um, ultimately, uh, it hurt them in a financial way. Um, the company um, started, you know, purchasing other stores and things, sight unseen, you know, without due diligence, and the question would be, like, from a marketing standpoint, well, aren't we going to do our due diligence? No, we're just going to buy these. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Well, that led us down a bad path. So what you had was a crumbling culture, uh, and you had crumbling finances, which were so solid. One of the great stories about that company in the early days was when a bill came, the rule was you pay it the next day. Now, how I figured out that we were starting to head into a bad area was all the advertising bills were starting to go to 45 days, 60 days, 
80 days, 90 days, going into the middle 90s and late 90s. Um, and you could see this all happening. So we had this crumbling of culture. We had a crumbling of finances. And um, it's, that's a very bad, <laughs> it's not a synergy. It's oil and water, and, and they, they really beat each other up, and, and it creates for a bad company. Uh, and it was really sad. Um, but, but as an executive there, it became very difficult. And I don't know if you know this, but there was a point where I was interviewing, and one of the jobs was with the PGA down in Ponte Vedra, Florida. I know, and you're, you're um, just an avid golf that. guy. I mean, I, I, I still to this day don't know why you didn't take that job given what was going on. I mean, come on. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it didn't get offered because um, I'll, never, I'll never forget. I was down there and I interviewed with all the execs of the PGA and Tim Fincham asked me, he said, can you move down here in the next two weeks? And, um, and I, I couldn't move that quick. You know, I had to think it through. And my buddies told me that that's, that's what, you know, killed it. But hey, you know what? At that point, then I wouldn't have become CEO of the company and had that great experience being the CEO and bringing the company back to life. So things happen for a reason, and which is all good. Um, but but the company was in, in dire straits, and uh, and it needed an influx of, of culture back in. It really did. Um, and of course, we were for sale. Yeah. And if you remember, and we did those twelve hour presentations of somebody to buy it. But what we got were bottom feeders coming in, and we're looking at the land, you know, the property, what's it worth, and so on. And those those presentations were going nowhere. Yeah, so so, uh, so I still want to isolate on what got the company to that point for a minute. And so uh, another concept that we talk a lot about in our work today is the difference between leadership and management. Um, and you know, I don't want anybody to get me wrong. Both are necessary. So we're we're not kind of the, the we're not the people that will come and tell you that all people should be leaders and management's a bad thing. But but when we look at the difference between leadership and management, one of the key points is you know. How is the work delegated and where does the accountability lie, right? And so um, when somebody's acting as a leader, what what happens is 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 there's almost it, it's it's as though we we delegate results to those people, right? It's you know the the people on the team, you know it's it's you know the leader would 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 have the people clear about what they're supposed to achieve and give the person freedom to act within those reins. Obviously, there's trust involved. There's other things. Management, on the other hand, is more of a control. Management is more about delegating kind of the tasks, the day to day. It's the control part of it. At a company in our size, you needed leadership at the top. I mean that that's how it had to run and, and that's really how it did run I mean you know pre-change of of positions kind of in in the the, the mid 90s the kind of that the first of the the triggering events um, you know before that you know well you were in marketing and and you know there were other areas you know you were in charge of that but you were pretty much given the freedom to act you had a result that you had to meet fair statement absolutely Absolutely. And then yeah. micromanagement came in from there with the change, and it was no longer your ability or your freedom to think and make decisions. It was it was really about somebody who actually wasn't an expert in your area, but um, was telling everybody what to do every single day. Exactly. You know. You know. Prior to that, Chris, we knew the parameters. We knew where where I like to talk about the goalposts. Yeah. And great inside the goalposts. So if you're playing inside the goalposts. You're great. If you have to step outside of the goalpost, then it's not so great. And you need to bring it into a big discussion and talk about if you can bring it inside the goalpost, which is the word great. And yeah. um, we live within those goalposts and we're able to do our job. You know, not that everybody loved everything, but um, you were able to go do your job and people knew you were working nonstop yeah, yeah, and um, I, I, again, it's just it's my belief that that's the mark of, of, of great leadership. And, you know, again, for any of the listeners out there, I mean, if, if you're a very, very small business, you're going to be management heavy. That's just what has to happen. But there is a point in time as a company grows that a single person's ability to run every function just becomes limited and ultimately disappears. I mean, you, you have to have good people that you can trust to do things. And um, when when one person is trying to control, and quite frankly, I see this still in a lot, lot of large organizations. We consult with a lot of large organizations, and and every once in a while, I come across that 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 person at the top who's trying to control every little action, and they never perform as well. And if anything, they often fail because it's hard to to, to maintain and keep good people. 
So well, no question. Yeah, you know, it's kind of you know we had uh you know we had uh actually that what what really helped us during that period of time is is you know outside of the 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 one person who is who has moved out of the organization, the CEO. Um, we, you know, the thing that worked in our favor is we really did have a good leadership team in place, right? You know, um, you, you, me, our CFO, um, you know, Ralph was still there. So we'll just to name a name that was there. I mean, we had a good group of people who were highly focused. We had a great attorney, you know, attorney, um, uh, general counsel who she was, she was phenomenal. And the team really pulled together and started acting as a team again and really righted the ship. I mean, so, you know, as you mentioned, the company was for sale, but we weren't really getting any good bites. Um, but once we started getting the, the ship righted, then we started seeing at least a decent offer to kind of come into play. And, and um, ultimately, ultimately, um, the company was sold. And, you know, it was at that point I decided to, to leave. I, I kind of had had enough of the industry and wanted to go do my own thing. Uh, you chose to stay on. And, you know, so, so what's, what's really interesting is in this call, we, we get a chance to talk about like almost like three different companies, four different companies, all from one standpoint, right? So we have a, you know, an entrepreneurial organization that grew that had strong leadership. Then we had a period of time with, with poor management. Um, then we had a turnaround, and now we step into the world of a venture capital, where a venture capitalist comes in and um, purchases the company, actually with no real restaurant background, but wanting to be in there. And so, um, you know, when we think in terms of good leadership, bad leadership, um, tell me a little bit about what happened post-sale and what that was like. Wow. Well, um, I... Uh... <laughs> yeah, it was it was interesting. I ran it for seven to eight years, uh, and it was uh, it was a constant battle for me because I knew the business so well, and the people meant the world to me, including the customers and the product. And um, you know, I was constantly told, "Change the product. Let's do this. Let's do that." Uh, you know, it was pretty much all about the cash register, and I knew that the money wouldn't follow if we started changing products and, and cheapening things. And um, moving good people out who are great people. So I battled it day in and day out. I really did. Um, after seven to eight years, it just, it just came to a head. Um, because in that world, it's more about the money. But what they don't understand in a lot of cases is the money isn't going to come if you don't do great. Sorry, it just doesn't work. Some people get lucky. They sell things for a billion dollars, whatever, but it's so few and far between. So you've got to continually run a great concern. You have to. You've got to be consistent. You've got to, you can't just go change things on the consumers that have had something the same for 10, 20, 30 years. And I knew better. So that was a constant battle that I had to fend off. And uh, ultimately, um, it just became too much for both of us, you know, after seven, eight years. Um, because I just wasn't, I, I, I just couldn't handle it anymore. You know, getting, getting beat on that, oh, no, we just need to do all these things. And on the other side, we got tired of hearing me say quality, quality, greatness, people, you know, all of those things. Um, so it just became a tough situation after those seven, eight years. And I was gone at the end of 2008. And I'll never forget when I left. Um, I said, the sad thing is that now, what we've built is going to be ruined. And I was told, I'll show you. And I said, I know you will. And now there's very few stores. You know, here we are, what, 12 years later. Uh, the company's been sold um, to another group. And hopefully they can turn it into something now. But it just dissipated in those 11 years to, uh, it's hard to even explain. Well, I mean, we, we, we talked a minute ago or, you know, a few minutes ago about how many restaurants there were in the heyday and really now at its low in the last couple of years. And so, so, so again, for the folks, the company was sold in 2000. So, so it was, you know, it, it was, it was on pro, it was, it was kind of reprogressing. We had a, fr a Japanese franchisee who had at previous to the sale had committed to converting 400 restaurants to big boys that disappeared because of because they didn't get along with the new ownership it was an ownership issue as i recall and um and today the last i heard now now the new company that just bought it have, have built a couple but the last number i heard was like 30 restaurants or something or even less i mean it was it's basically yeah, so nothing i don't know the exact number but um it's, it's down a lot. In fact, right before I left, 
we signed a 60-store development agreement in Southern California. And I'm not sure if any of those are there. We're probably, they're, they're probably down to three or four stores, five stores in all of California yeah, it's 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 actually um, you know I was there last uh, well just before the the COVID crisis hit you know before we restrict, restricted travel and the only store in at least Southern California that I'm aware of was the um, is it's the um, the store that's over by the studios the Warner Brothers Studios which is one of the original locations. Burbank. Yeah, yeah, Burbank. Yeah. yeah, there there were no other there were no other stores. There were a few. If I googled them, there were a few that came up, but the locations were closed or they weren't there. So yeah. um, you know, it's kind of sad. Uh, you know, it was it, it's it's really a great story about a rise and a fall and what works and what doesn't in an organization. It's 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 a textbook study of you know the difference between good culture and bad culture, the difference between good leadership and and, and bad leadership or even bad management. I mean, there's just so much to be learned by this. Well, and Chris, you know, I, I firmly believe if you're consistent and not having people guess all the time, if, you, if the message is consistent, we're going to run a great company, so let's all make our decisions on greatness. And they're not guessing like, oh, what's the CEO thinking? Am I not doing a good job? Things like that. You can eliminate that as much as you can. I think that that's a big key. And that comes from this single focus of greatness. So people can feel very comfortable in what they're doing. You know that they're making things great. Yeah, yeah. Aligned vision, aligned purpose. You know, um, energy, positive energy. Um, you know, those are the things that, that really factored in, and they factor into great organizations today. So, um, you know, we're at a we're 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 at our, our next break point, and um, we're gonna uh, kind of wrap it up for today. Tony, I want to thank you so much for, for being part of this conversation. Um, and as always, it's, it's, it's been great knowing you, and I look forward to more. And, um, you know, for the listeners out there, if you've enjoyed this conversation, if you want more from Tony, let us know. Maybe we'll even bring him back at some point. I, there's, we can, in, in this short period of time, we can only scratch the surface of a few of the stories, and there are just so many more. Um, we, can do, we can actually laugh. We can cry. There's so many things that we can do. So, Tony, thanks again for, uh, for being part of this, and um, I look forward to our next conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Great being here. Yep. Thanks, Tony. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a good week.